0: This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 122 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Joining me today is Tomasz Awasewicz. Tom is an author, journalist, and expert on counterintelligence who has taught courses at the SWPS University of Social Sciences in Warsaw and elsewhere. Currently, he focuses on the Cold War-era intelligence and counterintelligence units of the Polish People's Republic. I invited Tom onto the podcast to discuss his new book, Invisible, The Greatest Secret of the Secret Services of the Polish People's Republic. It's about a covert unit of Polish counterintelligence officers who specialized in penetrating foreign embassies to steal their secrets. The unit was filled with safecrackers and second-story men, and they paid an incredible price for their years of service to their government. It was a high-risk, high-reward mission, and Tom was able to uncover the entire story for us. But before we dive into this story, I want to ask you something. Are you an amateur military historian like me? Has this podcast rekindled your interest in Eastern Europe and the Cold War? Maybe you're finally getting into reenacting and living history just like you've always said you would. If so, you should check out the incredible collection of surplus military goods at Krushiki.com. Krush himself scours the continent for the best uniforms and field equipment available and delivers them right to your door. He's got almost anything you can imagine and many things you haven't. Uniforms from East Germany, the Soviet Union, modern-day Bulgaria, Poland, and Russia are all available. Rucksacks, mess kits, and load-bearing gear are also up on the site right now. The inventory is constantly changing, so you never know what kind of gems you might stumble on, all at very affordable prices. Find it all at kruschiki.com. That's K-R-U-S-C-H-I-K-I dot com. And use the discount code SPYCRAFT101 for 10% off your order. Tom, thank you for joining me today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this, honestly, ever since we were first in contact. I know it hasn't been that long, but this is a very exciting story to me. You know, I've read a little bit here and there about these types of operations before, but I never expected to be essentially handed such a complete and detailed account of these stories as the one that you've put together. So I'm I'm very excited about it, honestly.
1: Yeah, it's one of the most exciting parts of espionage. So no doubt about it. I can tell the story. I feel
0: that way. So what is it that led you to research this specific story in the first place?
1: Well, I've been working on the history of counterintelligence uh, and telling about the importance of counterintelligence through history for a number of years now. As I was working on my first book, which was around 2016-17, and I was interviewing many, many officers of our Polish counterintelligence, some of them mentioned during the interviews that they have seen actual photocopies of documents of foreign intelligence agencies I kind of connected that with something I had heard a few years before that, probably around 10 years ago now. It was an interview with our former Minister of T- Internal Affairs, former boss of the entire intelligence of Poland. He mentioned that there had been a group during the times of the Polish People's Republic, which was before 1990. There was a group of men from the counterintelligence that entered practically any embassy, any consulate that they wanted to visit and they opened safes, they copied the document and disappeared and they had never been caught. The interesting information in that, another interesting information because what he already said was, was fascinating anyway, but he also said that the method that they used included X-raying things and that most of these people simply died so they wouldn't be able to tell the story. And, you know, it was the former Minister of Internal Affairs so, you know, a serious person, but still the the story was so amazing that people just, you know, Nobody ever picked it up. The media didn't pick it up. Nobody cared about what he said. And then when I was interviewing the men that I mentioned before, the counterintel- different counterintelligence officers, I connected these two things, right? So them saying that they had actually seen photocopies of documents and this man, the former minister of internal affairs, saying that they did what he said they did. And so I started you
0: know, dwelling on the subject and that's how I got to the truth. Amazing stuff, really. And speaking of the truth, how is it that you were able to uncover so much of this? Because it seems like a lot of these stories that I try to cover steeped in mystery, but you have got practically all, if not absolutely all of the story, don't you?
1: I do. 1989, 1990, everything changes in this part of Europe obviously. Post 1990, a lot of people started saying that we should declassify whatever documents we had concerning, you know, the intelligence counterintelligence, the secret police. In Poland, they had different reasons and arguments. Some said that, you know, it was because they had to uncover who was an agent. Some said that it was because nobody would be able to blackmail Others, once you, you know, declassify the documents, everybody would know who was an agency, You wouldn't be able to be blackmailed, for example, you know, politicians, things like that. So, you know, they had different reasons. There were different arguments. And finally, Poland did declassify documents. First, some of them. Later on, all of them. And I'm talking practically practically all. I mean, 99.999%. The only things that are left apparently are things concerning, you know, maybe secret bunker somewhere that still exists and could be used and things like that. Everything else was declassified. And you know, honestly, it it was a mistake. I mean, it's it's quite embarrassing that that you know we actually let people know who was our agent. You know, not so long ago, frankly, right? I mean, the Cold yeah. War is not a something that happened a hundred years ago. Quite embarrassing, to be honest. And obviously, you know, I have something to work on, so you could say, yeah, great. But on the other hand, like I said, it's, it, it is quite embarrassing. And now, you know, with the documents declassified, I at least I hope I can use these documents to raise counterintelligence awareness. So this big mistake of declassifying could be used to, you know, to do something good.
0: That's what I'm doing. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I can certainly appreciate your candor on that. When you say that it's embarrassing, is it because it revealed the the names of people who, you know, still lived among the populace and that sort of thing? Or did it reveal the heavy handed role that they took at the time or, or all of the above?
1: No, I'm talking about, you know, revealing the names of, of our agents, our sources. I mean, this is unacceptable, you know, in a serious intelligence service. And all the officers that worked at that time in post-1990 are embarrassed by it, you know, because it's, it was not them that chose to do that. It was the politicians mm-hmm. and so on who had no idea of how it works. And, you know, hopefully we are able to rebuild the trust among, you know, foreigners, the trust for our intelligence services. For many years obviously, you know, somebody that was being recruited by our, you know, intelligence counterintelligence whatever, could say, "Come on, I'm not going to work with you guys. Look what you did to the documents." But, you know, it's been right. a while since that happened and I think we're we're building a reputation for ourselves. I hope I hope it gets better now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I my understanding is that among her allies, Poland's intelligence services have an excellent reputation now, don't they? They do. They do. I mean, we've been close allies since 1990,
1: and we've worked together since practically day one. I mean, 1989, we were, you know, you could say enemies, and 1990, we worked together. You know, the CIA, Mm -hmm. the FBI worked with the Polish Intelligence Service and with the men. I'm describing my book and we'll be talking about in our podcast.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. I did cover a related subject anyway on an episode quite some time ago uh, about a book called From Warsaw with Love with uh, a Washington Post journalist named John Pomfret. At the time, and that was a great look at it, and it really was amazing how quickly that that relationship changed for the better for both countries. You know, in from 1990 until Desert Storm. I mean, that book opens with Polish intelligence operatives rescuing American personnel in Iraq and Kuwait during Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, right. and just like you said, you know, just a couple of years earlier than that, they'd been on opposite sides of the Iron Curtain, so to speak. Right, right, right. It was very quick, and it has been great since then. Yes, I'm glad to hear it. So, this unit that you're talking about in particular, I think that you you said they're called was it Section Three or Department Three? Something Section, like nine, that?
1: Nine. Section, Section Nine. Nine.
0: Section Nine. Okay. It was Department
1: Two, Section Nine. So, inside the Ministry of Internal Affairs during that time, before 1990, there was uh, Department One, first department, which was the intelligence, and then there was the second department, which was counterintelligence. And within counterintelligence, you had Section Nine, and these are the the men that conducted these clandestine searches that we will be talking about.
0: Okay, fantastic. So was this, well, I I should say, was the intelligence service as a whole, was this a lot of operations uh, like directed or funded by Soviet Union at that time? Or was this all like organic Polish government directed operations?
1: Of course, you know, if you ask an average person, they will say that everything that happened before 1990 was, you know, funded by the Russians and so on. But the truth is very different, actually. I mean, post-1945, you know, 1944, 1945, you know, the Second World War ends. And, yeah, you have Russian officers basically running our intelligence service, kind of, right? You, they are actually present here. They, they have their offices. But, you know, after that, and especially, you know, after 1953, 54, 55, 56, That changes a lot. You know, we're becoming more and more and more independent. And once we get to the 70s and 80s that we'll be talking about, of course, we're still allies, allies, right? We have the Warsaw Pact. So obviously we share information, but, you know, the officers are not present here. They don't just freely walk into any office and, you know, check the documents. They don't give orders. They are informed about things just like today you could say. The polls are informed about stuff that we do, if it's important, right? Obviously, we don't share everything because, you know, even within NATO, not all intelligence services, you know, share everything. That's that's how intelligence services work. But we still still share important stuff. You also share important stuff with us, right? If it concerns us, if it's dangerous mm-hmm. for us, it's whatever. You, you, you drop us a message, let's say. <laughs> so uh, that's the way it was in the 70s, 80s too, right? We shared information. But no, it was not funded. But there is an important thing that we have to mention, is that the most important method that was used for opening locks, combination locks mainly, mechanical combination locks, the one with the dial and everything. So the method that was used to open these was introduced to us by the Russians. That That's an undeniable fact. But once we were shown this method, which happened probably in the early 70s, but it for sure happened before the oldest of my interviewees joined the Section 9. We don't know for sure, and it's also not in the documents, but it seems that it was early 70s. Yeah, we were shown that. And then from then, we developed that method, and we became basically completely independent. If there was a huge problem, if we had something we couldn't do, just like you know, in other parts of the world, different intelligence services help each other, but that happened rarely, and basically in the 80s, we did everything to actually avoid meeting with the Russians. And when you look at who the documents that they obtained, that Section 9 obtained, was, you know who the documents were shared with, you can clearly see that not everything and not even a big part goes to the Soviet Union, right? It's just some general things that go you know, to the Soviet Union, to Hungary, other allied forces— Yeah, just normal sharing, but definitely not. We're not being funded and these were not Soviet operations.
0: Okay. Okay, I see. So, of course, the the object here is to penetrate foreign embassies, like you mentioned. Do you know what the specific criteria were for who and, and when and how they would penetrate? Like, I assume that embassies from NATO allied countries would be priority number one, but there was probably a lot more that went into it than that, I would imagine
1: definitely NATO mainly but we have to understand one thing i don't know if probably a lot of our listeners will will know that but for those who don't know let's make one thing clear it doesn't work the way you see in you see it in movies right so it's not one officer that has an idea to conduct some operation then he opens the logs then he takes photographs and then he's also a case officer for the agent it's a big structure so a lot of intelligence services, counterintelligence services, they have what I guess you call support staff. So let's say you have case officers that work within counterintelligence and they recruit agents. They have the whole picture, right? They they have the documentation, they look at the whole, you know, spectrum, let's say. And then they have the support staff, which is, you know, surveillance units, foot, car surveillance. You have the technical people that, you know, can bug a place, right? and then you have people like the ones we're talking about and these men are not case officers they uh, don't recruit agents they they are given requests by the case officers so by for example the british section without, w- within the counterintelligence you know then the british the americans obviously right the germans i, I mean the west germans of course uh, were targets for us so you had the case officers that dealt with that and then they had different ideas right for how to find out more about these particular countries so they would uh, contact the you know this section nine that we're talking about and they would say well we would really like to you know see what's inside the German embassy we would like to see what is uh, inside the Italian embassy the Swedish embassy whatever and could you help us right so they were given such requests and then section nine also cooperating with other units because section nine also got information well actually sorry scratch that Section 9 didn't cooperate with other units, but the case officers that I mentioned, they cooperated at the same time with the surveillance units, with the technical people, you know, the bugs and everything. And so they gave Section 9 this, you know, whole picture, you know, and they said, look, you know, we have surveillance saying that, I don't know, let's say Italian guards walk around the embassy only at 2 in the morning and 4 in the morning and 6 in the morning. Can you check whether it would be in any way possible to enter... embassy somewhere between these hours and avoid seeing them and you know open the safes and leave before they notice you and then section nine you know did all of the research and told the case officers whether it was possible or not and honestly 99 percent of the time the answer was yes uh, which doesn't mean that you could enter any embassy you wanted because obviously the case officers wouldn't even ask to have the the section nine enter An embassy that was, for example, full, full, full of people 24-7. And there were such embassies. Like, for example, the American embassy in Warsaw, which was a huge, is still, right, it's the same building, is a huge building. You have people there present all the time. At night, you would have people actually working on stuff inside the vault. So it was impossible, and nobody would even ask them to, to, you know, check whether it was possible to enter that particular place. But different places that theoretically were possible to enter, like, for example, the, the embassy that I mentioned, Italian one they had armed guards 24 7 but there were no people working inside at night so if you Hmm. avoided meeting let's say you know clashing with the guards you could theoretically get in and
0: that was done okay I see that that's amazing to me that the internals of the building would often be unoccupied but if you see an opportunity there of course you're gonna take it I mean you'd be crazy not to
1: so well, actually, was, you'd be surprised the-
0: because most embassies, and that probably doesn't only concern
1: Poland, but but also other countries. I don't know today, but at that time, most embassies and most consulates were actually unoccupied at night. You could have guards. You could have people sleeping in them, literally. You know, having rooms and sleeping as a form of protection. But they wouldn't be working, and they wouldn't be inside the offices. They wouldn't be inside the vault. They just locked the door. They locked the best locks. They found the best locks they could find. Locked everything. You know, had vaults, had alarm systems, and they thought, "Come on, we have all of this stuff. We have all of this. You know, these locks and alarm systems, and then we also have people sleeping there. So who would come and open all of this without us? You know, waking up. It's just impossible.
0: But it was possible. <laughs> incredible, incredible." So you mentioned that the case officers would come to Section 9. So were these operations typically to look for some like specific information thought to be in a specific office, or was it more about an unguarded or a, or a poorly guarded facility and trying to get in and just get anything that you could? These were not poorly guarded
1: facilities, seriously. I mean, the the ones that they entered, you know, you could say, oh, they entered it, so it was poorly guarded, but they were actually pretty well guarded very Mm -hmm. often. But it was just, you know, one of the officers told me, and, you know, this is true for a lot of aspects of life. He said, everything is is possible, but the big question is, is it worth it and how much money you'll have to invest in it? So, you know, know, you can have the best embassy, you could have the Russian embassy in Washington, right? And you could say, come on, this is impossible. But if you invest... 50 billion dollars and work on it for 10 years who knows maybe you'll we'll be able to enter it every night mm-hmm. you know you'll find a way right yeah they were not fully guarded these were long-term operations so it rarely happened that the case officer would say oh hey okay we have a specific date and we have a specific document that we know is going to come through the embassy so you go there and you get it it usually this- such things usually happen with let's say unpopular or uninteresting countries so you could have i don't know let me think what they entered argentina right argentinian embassy right so you can have something interesting but it was not worth the risk to actually go there for example two times a week and copy everything so you'd only enter once a year twice a year because the case officer said oh yeah we think there's going to be something interesting so you also had to take a year a year or two years or sometimes 10 years to actually get in because you know if you look at the documents Like, let's say, the Embassy of India, right? There is a file, which I saw, which concerns the the Embassy of India. The first details, right? So so sketches of rooms and an officer describing in the 1960s that, I don't know, there's a hole in the roof and there is a whatever, something that you could go through and the gate opens this way, not that way, whatever. So this starts, for example, in the 60s. And then they enter... Many, many years later, based on all of this that was obtained over the years. So it takes sometimes a long time. So, yeah, there were cases where, you know, they would enter because there was a request for a particular document. But this usually happened with the unpopular embassies and or, or consulates. But the ones that were interesting for sure all the time, right, they were simply visited on a regular basis. So some of them twice a week. What? Yeah, twice a week. So I'm sorry to say that, you know, the most important targets of our counterintelligence were the American consulates in Krakow. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm I'm sorry, because, you know, (laughs) we're probably going to have American listeners mainly, but, you know, (laughs) we became friends in 1990. The same officers became friends with the CIA, FBI officers. So no hard feelings. It was the Cold War, right? So our main targets were, yeah, the consulates of the US in Krakow, which is a big city in Poland, and Poznan, which is another big city in in Poland. And these places were visited 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 times a year. So My you God. can imagine. And, you know, during some periods, twice a week, important to mention that both of these consulates and especially the Poznan one were occupied at night by the workers who lived inside. So in Krakow, there were also people who were, you know, who had the rooms there, but it was a little bit easier because it was like a different side of the building, right? So you were a little bit farther from, you know, the people who could hear the noise, the Americans. And then in Poznan, these people were right next door. Sometimes you would be just walking by the door where somebody 10 inches away was in his bed. So it's pretty amazing.
0: That's shocking to me, honestly. That's incredible. So they were getting, when you say visiting 40, 50 times a year or more, you're talking about accessing the locked offices inside, not just, you know, scaling a fence or something like that? Well, the offices are obviously interesting too, but this was not the main target.
1: The main target was the, well, there are many names for that. We we use the word bunker, but basically is the vault, which all of the American and many other, I mean, embassies of many other countries had. So a safe room, there was basically a vault. I mean, the Americans, You you made quite frankly great vaults i mean you had this consulate which was not a huge it wasn't like like the embassy in warsaw i mean the embassy in warsaw like i said is a huge structure with you know tennis courts and a hotel and things like that right so the consulate was a fairly small place i can't remember how many people worked there but i'm guessing like 14 15 maybe right people worked in such a place still even though it was not you know a major embassy you had great vaults i mean you Basically, it was a room that was, I mean, okay, the, your specialist came, basically, probably CA people, maybe FBI, who knows. They came when the building where the consulate was, was given to you. I mean, I can't remember if it was sold to you or rented, doesn't matter. You, ha- you were given a building by the Polish government, and your specialist came, and it's also described in some of the documents, you know, this whole process where, you know, they... The Polish countertonist actually, you know, watches. The experts come and they know when they are here and they, you know, look through their bags at the hotel. And obviously your CIA experts were great experts, so they didn't have anything in their bags, but you still had to check, right? You know, one of the men that I interviewed said that, you know, whenever they went inside a hotel room and they looked inside the bag and there, were only, there was only underwear, it was pretty clear that it was a security expert from the CIA <laughs> or the FBI mm-hmm. because other people would have some documents, passports, whatever. But the security guys, you know. They were too cautious to leave anything behind. So they only had underwear, et cetera, in the room. So you were given that building and then the experts came from your intelligence and counterintelligence, and they, you know, looked at the uh, layout and they found the room that was somewhere in the back, right? Room without windows and things like that. And then they basically built another room inside this room. So they put thick walls inside this room, creating another room, and then at the entrance, they put vault doors, Mosler. It's, it's a famous, I think it doesn't exist anymore, but it was a famous American safe slash vault door brand, Mosler. Yeah, I'm not sure if you've mm-hmm. heard of it, but yeah, it's pretty old. And I saw some of these safes being sold for a lot of money now to collectors. Yeah. So he, they would put, you know, vault doors uh, at the entrance and they would also put a, what do you call it? Like a counter on the top. Of the door or actually above the door so every time you open the door the counter would show how many times the door was open and the counter was actually inside a well i don't know what you call it in, in, in english i'm sorry in a liquid right that was of course solid became solid after it you know it dried up yeah so this liquid as it was drying and the counter was inside it had paint and threads pushed into the liquid so once it became solid you had these irregular structures, and you can see a picture in my book actually, with you know, with these this paint, you know, like shades and and these threads, irregular shapes, right? So it was done because the Americans wanted to make sure that nobody replaced the counter, because the counter you could buy actually at, at a specialist store somewhere in West Germany, right? It wasn't rocket science, but because they didn't want somebody to replace. The, the counter, obviously. They they put it inside this liquid, which became solid and had these irregular shapes. And it was you know extremely difficult to recreate. It took a long time for our counterintelligence to figure out how to do it. But I'm sorry, I'm not sure what it's called in English, because that's actually difficult vocabulary in Polish for me. I only know it because I talked to these men. But they used a vacuum pump, I don't know what it's called, a water vacuum pump or something like that, to actually recreate all these shapes inside this liquid and create two copies of these counters that they simply replaced every time they visited the, the the vault they would just unscrew the original one put the replacement one leave with the original then when they came back they usually put back the original one you know because they did whatever they could for the original one to be hanging as much as possible and they had two copies, so but they wouldn't replace the copy with a copy. They usually tended to, you know, return the original one they, when they visited again. And yeah, so your your vaults were great, but
0: yeah, we were able to get in. Incredible, that's incredible stuff. My gosh, Tom. So clearly, a, a huge amount of prep work had to go into all of these operations, even if you were able to regularly pull them off. So can you explain how all of these locations were scouted and assessed and that sort of thing before the first person actually entered the first time?
1: Right. Well, let's go back to the case officers, right, from different sections, the British, the American one, the German one, the French one. So they, of course, had to gather as much information as they could for Section 9, which, you know, didn't have time or resources or, you know, didn't even feel like doing such things. So, you know, they had to, the case officers had to come with as much as they could. So, obviously, like in any country, I mean, it's the same in any any country around the world, there were agents who were recruited from within the embassy. As you can imagine, 99% of the agents usually are the citizens of the home country, right? So in all of these embassies, you had polish cleaning lady or a polish janitor or a polish secretary or something like that so first these people were recruited just like in any other country even the countries that don't do this clandestine searches and many of them surely do until this day now it's a a little bit more difficult because of the electronics there's much more electronics now than there was in the past but i'm sure it's done so even the countries that don't do it they still obviously recruit people you know to gather information and a secretary inside an embassy like this even if she uh, didn't know anything about counterintelligence she still was not surprised that you know somebody from the Polish counterintelligence wanted to to talk to her and find out when the ambassador comes or if she had heard something interesting and you know whatever these people were recruited just like they are in any other country even if these clandestine searches are not done right so they gave you you know tidbits of you know different information so they would tell you when the yeah when the guards come which which guard has an alcohol problem and falls asleep at night. And the crucial thing is that they were never asked questions that would indicate that we actually enter the crucial, you know, rooms inside the embassy. Preferably, they were not even asked questions that would show that we go far. They knew, just like any other citizen in the world knows, that the counterintelligence would try to install a wiretap, right? They would bug mm-hmm. the place. They would do something, right? Take pictures, maybe install a camera, right? But you couldn't ask anything more. And even if you, for example, if if a secretary told you that, I mean, you you meaning you know a case officer, if a case officer was told that the cipher room guy, let's say, right? The, the guy that's in charge in the cipher room, the vault, He has a drug problem, right? So even then, the Polish counterintelligence wouldn't think, okay, maybe let's we'll we'll recruit that guy. We'll blackmail him. We'll recruit him, whatever. No, that was not done simply because we had a safer, you know, it's a funny thing, but we had a safer method where nobody would ever find out. I mean, if you recruit a guy with drug problems and he's going to let you in, he might not say anything for a year, but then after that, who knows, right? He'll be sent back home and he'll, you know, tell the FBI... And then, you know, there's going to be a trap set up for us or something like this. So nobody was ever told, none of these, you know, sources that were recruited were ever told anything that would in any way indicate that we were going anywhere far. They would think, if anything, they would think that, you know, it's just normal bugs or whatever. And maybe, you know, we need to install some cables outside on the wall. And that's why we're asking when the guards are, you know, present or not. So, you know, even knowing what you know already about my my book and the story, it's hard for you to believe that somebody would go inside the vault. So imagine how hard it would be for a source, a secretary or whatever, janitor, to actually even have the idea that anybody goes inside the vault at night. So, you know, they were not told, they were not asked about such things, they had no idea, but still they gave you some information, right, that you could put together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after 10 years, you had a good set of, you know, information that would allow you to go inside. Then you also had the surveillance, of course, like I said. So like in most countries, you know, you had some kind of surveillance units, you know, stationed next to the embassy in a building across the street. So they would, you know, write down, of course, when the lights go on, when the lights go off, when the cleaning lady comes, when the guards go around the building and so on. Then you also had wiretaps, although surprisingly not many, because we're able to go inside these places so often. And so you could say easily, of course, it took time, but still we were able to do it, that you know, it didn't make sense for us to install wiretaps in, let's say, the ambassador's room, because obviously this place was checked for bugs. And once it was checked, they would know we were there, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, so it didn't make sense to install a wiretap, which would give us some information, but we would risk. Mm, exposing the fact that we were inside, right? So right, even if it was right. the maybe in the reception or something, I, I've i heard of wiretaps, but very rarely, right? Obviously the phones were bugged, but that's quite obvious, right? But, you know, that that's also a source of information. Phones. Mm-hmm. So all of this put together, you know, mail surveillance also, right? So the mail would be intercepted and, and checked. Uh, all of this was... Research was done on that, you know, information was gathered, and then the officers would go to Section 9, and uh, Section 9 would be told, yeah, we have this and that. The guards are asleep uh, between these and these hours. What can you do? And then, obviously, our officers would also uh, analyze all of this. Uh, I mean, the Section 9 officers would analyze all of this, and possibly come back with questions. So, for example, let's say that they would like a picture of a lock, right? Yeah. So, you know, then the case officers would see what they can do and you know sometimes if we're talking for example about the first lock and the first lock even the simplest lock on the gate or or the entrance door is also crucial because obviously I guess we'll be talking about that later I mean how it what it actually looked like step by step but obviously you can't stand on the street and struggle with the lock the first one you know because people can see right people from of the embassy potentially, if they look outside the window, people from across the street can see you. The guards can see you. So, for example, if they needed a picture of the first log, they would say, "Can you get a picture?" And this was easy. I mean, a case officer could actually go inside and pretend like he was a you know somebody that needed something from the embassy. Just take a picture and come back, right? So, such things were done, and all of this was collected, and then they would start going gradually going inside. So, you know, it, it takes time. First, you go through the first door. You see what the next lock is. You see if you can open
0: it or not and so on, and so on, and so on. It's a long process. Hmm. My gosh, yeah, I, I can imagine. That's amazing. So during the actual operation, the overnight operation, how many people would be involved? Or was it just like one person going in by himself? Or were there you know, a network of people out on the street watching in all directions, that sort of thing?
1: They're directly at the embassy or the council, whatever. Because uh, also I forgot to mention that you know embassies and consulates were the main targets, but there were also other places, for example, you know, different countries, for example, have institutions that operate as a cover for the intelligence. So, for example, if our counterintelligence found out that the Institute of, let's say, I'm, I'm making this up now, but I don't know, the Institute of Spanish Language, which is run by the embassy, the Spanish embassy, is actually, you know, some kind of cover for the intelligence, they would also go inside, right? So, these were different places. So, Inside the building, right, we in Poland call it objects, right? So inside the object, inside the building, you'd have usually at least three people, right? But this was the minimum, and three people would go inside usually only when all of the locks have had already been seen. And, you know, for example, we were able to make a copy and then we knew, for example, the combination because it was uh, determined a week or two weeks ago was still not changed. So, you know, it was an easy job. So you could go inside, walk out easily. So th- minimum of three inside, but you could have more. Obviously not crowds, right? So there's been times when... You know, my interviewees told me that there was a bigger bunch of people, but of course, bigger bunches, you know, six, seven, eight, but this is rare. So, usually a, usually, a few, four or five, yeah, that would be enough. You know, they had equipment they had to carry, so it would be, you know, difficult to go, you know, just single handedly and obviously also not safe. But these are the people that are inside. But you also asked a very good question what what about, you know, surveillance and the outside and everything? So, this took, I mean, these operations included. Dozens and dozens and dozens of people. So the case officers, because each time Section 9 entered the embassy, the case officer from the section that dealt with a particular country was present, right? This person had to be inside because Section 9 officers actually had no idea what they were supposed to copy. They had no idea because they did not care. They had other problems to worry about. So they were opening locks, they were carrying the equipment, they were, you know, doing all these things. But once the safe was open, they pulled out the documents for the case officers, because they were professionals, they knew how to move them and be able to, you know, put them in the right place later. Also, actually, pictures were taken, you know, with instant cameras before anything was touched, so you could recreate it later, but mm-hmm. that's a longer story. But still, they were pulling out documents for the officer, but it was the officer, the case officer, that actually said, yeah, we need that. Yeah, I anyway, mean, we, we don't need this. You know, the case officer knew the language. The You know, these Section 9 officers went into so many embassies, and there was just a you know, about a dozen of them that did that. So not many. They didn't know all the languages. They didn't know Japanese. They didn't know Spanish. They didn't know Italian, right? So it was the case officer that had to say, "Yeah, this is this is not important. We're not copying this. This is important. We're copying this." So he was always present. And he was kind of the person that had to organize everything around the embassy too for Section Nine. So he was the one that dealt with the surveillance. He had to order surveillance for that particular day. And if we're talking about surveillance. We're talking about a few dozen people, 60 people, 70 people, two, three, four sections of our surveillance arm were all told that they had to work that particular night. None of them knew exactly why. Some of them that were closest to the embassy would know that, you know, that's something about the embassy. They also didn't know that anybody went inside the vault. They probably didn't have this idea even, right? And They probably thought, yeah, again, that it's wiretaps or whatever, right? They knew there was the embassy. But the other officers could possibly not even know that that there was something happening inside the embassy, but they were told that they have to go and follow British diplomat John Smith from the embassy to his apartment, watch whether he's in his bed, if the lights don't come on, if he doesn't get in his car, until they're told... That they're free. So four or five in the morning, they would be told, okay, you can go home because you know the section nine would be out of the embassy, right? So we're talking about, yeah, dozens and dozens and dozens of people, because even look at, let's say the Krakow consulate, the American consulate that I mentioned, you could have 15 workers, but each worker needed to have at least one car, sometimes even more, and a car would be two people, right? So mm-hmm. watching, so you already have 30, 40 people In a small consulate. So imagine big embassies, like for example the Swedish embassy in Warsaw, which was uh, penetrated on a regular basis. This was a big institution, so you'd have you know dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people conducting surveillance
0: during the search. Okay, okay, I see. So since you mentioned that they would be out at four or five in the morning, were these officers that were inside? Were they in for several hours at a time, or was it like get in fast and get out fast?
1: Yeah, no, it was it was a few hours. I mean, if you knew the combination, for example, because it had been determined, you know, a week before, for example, and and like I said, wasn't changed, then you could be there for a couple hours, for example. It it takes a while to go inside open the safe, even if you know the combination. Do all of this carefully, do all of this tiptoeing if there were people inside the embassy. And you have to photograph that, you know, today with our smartphones and digital cameras or whatever, you could basically take a picture of a document in any light and, you know, some kind of IT specialist would later, you know, zoom in, whatever. He would figure it out. But then, you know, they had the cameras, right? They had to put it uh, under the right light, right? They had to, you know, worry about the focus and things like this. So it took a while. So, you know, two, three hours was a minimum. But if they had more to do, then, you know, it all depended, of course, on when it was safe to go inside. I mean, if, if the guard... No I know the name, not the art, but one of the mm, residents of the consulate went to sleep usually at eleven, then you would not go inside at eleven o one. you would go inside at you know twelve o'clock and then sure. you had a bunch of stuff to do, so you still stayed until five right so you know it could take many hours, but it never took a second, not because they they were slow, but simply because you had to be careful and even when you were pulling out documents from the embassy from the safe, I'm sorry. You had to pull them out in a way that didn't leave any traces, you know, of you being there. You know, you have to even worry about dust. If you go inside the and or embassy and you, you, you see documents that are covered with dust and it could happen, right? How do you deal with them? Right? It's, it's, it is a problem. It sounds funny,
0: but dust is a problem. Sure. Yeah, understandable. So were there ever any occasions that you found where they were actually caught in the act, like, you know, your officers were found inside of an embassy or consulate? Never. And if they had been caught, everything, I mean,
1: after that, that would be it, right? I mean, they would never do it again, because, you know, if it was a NATO country, they would inform another NATO country, another NATO country that such things were done it mm-hmm. could be an international scandal you know you never know how they would deal with that because you know it's just like with you know when you catch a spy some people will report that on the news some people will deal with it silently right so Nobody knows how what they would do. Nobody even knows if they would release them, right? I mean, what do you do if you catch a guy inside your embassy? Do you keep him there? Do you kick him out? Do you call the police? And if you call the police, you're calling the Polish police. So what are they going to do? And, you know, it's a big problem. So no, they were never caught because if they had been, it would probably be on the news in New York Times, literally, right? Mm-hmm. So no. And the only two things that happened ever were because this Section 9 also had a unit within it that didn't deal with going inside the embassies but they dealt with opening diplomatic mail in of course in a clandestine way so these guys worked at the mainly at the Warsaw airport so obviously the most important diplomatic mail if you had you know one document or something that you know was the most important document of the intelligence service of a certain country That would be brought, obviously, in somebody's pocket, right? So you would never be able to open that. But normal diplomatic mail, which also includes secrets, sometimes things that are top secret. But, you know, everyday mail of an embassy, that came in bags, right? And these bags were sealed. They were locked. Sometimes they were locked with special locks. They were thick bags, thick material. They had, you know, watermarks, this, that. So it was very difficult to to open without showing that you were actually there but still these bags went through customs just like any other thing and usually it would work this way that it would come in on an airplane and there would be a driver a security guy whatever from the embassy waiting for it to go through the customs and the thing that they were looking at i mean the security officers from embassies was time so basically they were looking at when the uh, airplane landed and how long it took to actually process their mail so they would become suspicious after a certain amount of time obviously right so mm-hmm. our officers had to, again, for, you know, months and years, they, they would look at bags and see what locks they had, you know, padlocks. They would look at, you know, whatever other safety measures they, a certain country introduced. And finally, in most cases, they were able to open these things and they had to do it very quickly. So you asked me about whether these operations were ever discovered by anybody. So there was a, one case where most probably a politician, so a politician that was actually the recipient of whatever the Section 9 you know, was able to obtain. Obviously, these politicians didn't know where it was coming from. They just knew it was a report from the counterintelligence. It was processed a million times to cover the source and so on and so on. Nevertheless, a politician in our the main party in, in, in Poland, he most probably mentioned during a talk with the Germans that something that was inside these documents, a fact, right? And they put two and two together and it seems that uh, mm. they simply use, stopped using the method that they were using. And this method was actually a metal case. They didn't use bags. They used a metal case, like a container with a lock and also a counter. It, it counted how many times you opened the thing. So we were able to figure out a way to open it. And we did it for many years. But then it suddenly disappeared. It just it was overnight. They stopped using it. And it seems that it was probably because somebody said something somewhere where they were not supposed to. This is one thing. And the second thing that happened was a case which actually, it happened in, in, in the American consulate. It looks like mm, the CIA, the FBI, whoever that was, probably CAA, figured out that there was a leak, uh, or maybe there was just standard procedure that you know they would check every consulate in the world right, uh, from time to time. Nevertheless, uh, what I'm getting at is that the one time when the officers came, they noticed that there was a piece of furniture, a new piece of furniture standing right next to the entrance to the vault. It was just a wooden mm, bookcase or something like that, right? And one of the officers, you know, I mean, they were surprised in general. They, every time that something new appeared, they were, you know, of course, cautiously approaching it and, and so on. And one of the officers uh, noticed, heard actually, that there was a very, very, very silent noise every time you approached it. You could hear a click, like a very, very silent click. Hmm. And what it turned out to be was a camera that took pictures anytime somebody walked, I mean, walked past it, right? It just took a picture every time you approached the, the vault. So they erased whatever was on the film. You know, you could use light, I guess, right? To, to It was, you know, back in the day, it wasn't a hard drive, right? So they erased whatever was on this thing, right? They left and they didn't come back until... I believe it was like four or five years later because, you know, there was too big of a risk mm-hmm. because obviously somebody was, you know, something was happening, but it looks like it wasn't like the Americans found out that it was, you know, our counterintelligence officers entering the vault. Why? You can imagine that in the 1980s, because the the 1980s, they were very secure, clandestine ways of surveilling a place. I mean, you could put a, Three millimeter, you know, like a fraction of an inch hole in the ceiling, right? And put a camera there, right? We did such things in the 80s. So obviously, every other intelligence service around the world had such cameras, right? So, as you can imagine, if the Americans knew that we had a, you know, counterintelligence officers that were able to open a muzzle or vault door without leaving any trace of them being there, they would not put a piece of furniture, a bookcase next to the door with some, you know, sound you know, every time you you approach it. So it looks like it was either standard procedure or that there was a suspicion that one of the workers, one of the, you know, Americans, unfortunately, right, was doing something inside the mm. vault when he was not supposed to. Because obviously they would not use this old school, you know, camera and bookcase, you know, to catch people who are doing such things. If they really had, they really had source. I mean, the FBI had... Or the CIA had cameras that nobody would ever be able to find, obviously, right? It looks like the, the Americans knew that there could be a leak or maybe they were just checking, you know, if there wasn't. Yeah, so we had to start stop going inside because we're not sure. And like I said, it was too big of a risk. And after, I believe, yeah, four or five years, I can't remember exactly what year it was, second half of 80s, we slowly started coming back. You know, we use infrared equipment, some other things, radio waves. I mean, equipment checking for radio waves inside the building, you know, to check whether there were there were no electronic devices installed inside the consulate that would, you know, reveal that we were there. And once we determined that there were no devices, the bookcase was gone. Actually, it was in a different place. There are pictures of it in the documents that it was, you know, taken down and put in a different room and there was no camera inside. We started entering the, the, the consulate again. Hmm. Incredible.
0: So Tom, earlier you mentioned the use of x-rays and that was actually extremely significant to this whole story. So can you talk about how those x-rays were utilized and and the the cost benefits, the cost versus the benefits of that? Right. Well, it's not a secret. It's not rocket science
1: that you can x-ray something. You can see what's inside a metal object using radiation, right? So all of the security experts, all of the engineers that build doors, vault doors and and safes, they knew that you could actually X-ray the thing and see, for example, you know, when you have a combination lock and you have wheels inside, three or four, depends on the model, and you, by, what do you call it, I guess it's a dial, yeah, by, by turning the dial, you rotate these wheels and... If you have the right code, they will be put in a position where another element jumps in and you're able to open the door. It's a long story and that doesn't need to be said. But basically, you know, you need to see the wheels inside the vault door or the safe to be able to determine what the combination is. Right. Mm -hmm. So obviously a burglar could try at least try to you know drill inside put a camera inside and you know there there are that's what actually safe crackers now do if you if you forget your combination one of the methods one of many methods right of determining the code in your you know gun safe for example is by drilling a hole and putting a camera inside like miniature camera where you know the the expert can see the wheels and he's able to determine the combination so you know you could do that even then you could drill and try to put something inside and see but obviously they would never do that because that way it would be a one-time thing. The next day when the Americans, British, Germans, whatever, came, they would see that somebody was inside their vault, right? So that's out of the question, totally, right? So the only other method of seeing into something without having a hole is obviously radiation. So all the engineers that build vaults and safes, they, they protected the locks from radiation in one way or another, right? So some of the saves—that's that, a crude method—but some of the saves would have, for example, a box with lead balls uh, somewhere next to the lock, right? So you know, lead stops uh, radiation. It's very difficult to radiate, uh, you know, to see. If you try to take a picture with radiation, other locks, for example, would, and this includes the locks installed inside your consulates, they would have wheels that were not made of metal, but they were made of plastic. Why plastic? Because obviously plastic is a material through which radiation goes through easily. And therefore on, you know, the x-ray film, you know, the the actual picture that you have, like when you have your hand broken or whatever, right? you would not be able to see anything because, you know, it passed through without any problem. uh, So you wouldn't be able to see anything, right? Mm, So yeah, engineers designed different methods of protecting the lock from radiation. It seems that it all started, and I'm saying it seems because I was told that by a case officer that now is in his 90s, actually. And he remembered the first time it was done at the American consulate. At the consulate there, you at least at the beginning, right? You had metal wheels inside the lock, right? The plastic ones were later installed in Krakow, the Krakow, the the, the other city, but first in Poznan you had the metal wheels, right? So Mosler people, the engineers, yeah, they inserted a me- a lock with metal wheels, but uh, they had thick, you know, they built really thick door with thick metal plates and everything. So basically the plates, and actually there are pictures of it in the documents, the plates that was uh, inside the vault on the door, on the inside of the door, said that Mosler certified that it would take 20 hours radiologically obtain... The combination, right? So it would take hmm. 20 hours to, you know, to exp- you would have to expose the door to 20 hours of radiation to be able to see the wheels, right? Clearly in a picture. So yeah, it was not a secret to engineers from around the world that you could x-ray something, but they calculated using numbers. I mean, radiation created by isotopes that were, in their opinion, possible to actually use at night at a consulate without killing yourself. You know, radiation is very... Very dangerous, right? Sure. So they, they wondered, okay, so how strong the radiation would be for somebody to actually put it inside and cancel it at night, you know, carry it in a box, you know, how, how strong would it be? And they calculated that the strongest isotope that you could use without suffering later would, be, would take, you know, 20 hours to x-ray the, the, the lock. Unfortunately, and I'm saying unfortunately because a lot of the officers died as a result of this, our officers, the isotopes that they used made it possible to obtain the picture of the wheels at the consulate in Poznan in about one hour and a half. So you can imagine how strong it was, right? Oh, my gosh. So, again, your embassies, very well protected. There was a big problem with the Poznan consulate, which was the main big target, first big target when it came to these operations with radiation. The problem was that uh, the engineers or the CIA specialists, whoever that was, who built that vault, they actually thought everything through. So they installed these heavy-ass doors and put the vault inside the building in a position where it would also be difficult to array, to put the isotope anywhere outside on the outer wall, for example, right? So it was all thought over. It would, you know, They put it in the best place possible, obviously because they knew it was possible to x-ray something, right? So because we were not able to put the isotope anywhere outside, and it would have to be you know, unbelievably strong to do that, right? We thought of a different method. So one of the officers that died some time ago, so yeah, he's not here anymore, he was this very experienced officer of this unit, and he thought of an idea, which was to actually drill a hole, a small hole under the vault, under the door of the vault, right, And once he made that hole, he put the isotope, which was either cobalt 60 or or iridium 192, but usually cobalt 60. He put it, this isotope was in a small container, it's like a metal capsule, let's say. So he screwed this capsule and this isotope onto a rod, a metal rod, a piece of thin piece of metal, right? Onto the, you know, one end of it. And he would push this isotope through this hole that was drilled under the door into the vault and because the rod was round finally it would be kind of on the level of your let's say waist right Mm -hmm. where the lock was right so it would be radiating from the inside of the vault and then he would put film in front of the lock and after an hour and a half you'd have a picture of the wheels So this is how it all started. And uh, later on it progressed and, you know, the officers were both looking for safer methods, you know, a little bit safer because it's always dangerous, but, you know, safer methods where you wouldn't have to take tweezers and screw an isotope onto a rod, which is, you know, I mean, experts that are listening to us are probably thinking, what in the world is this guy saying? Well, they (laughs) they have to look at the documents because, you know, nobody would do that. I mean, any expert would say, come on, this is suicide. Basically you're not allowed to do that the i'll give you a good example that is actually in my book there is a document which presents how much radiation there was around the container used for many years in in section 9 for the isotope so there is a there was and there still is of course a norm like a like a number that is accepted by i don't know it's european regulations polish regulations worldwide regulations i'm not sure and it says, for example, that you can have this much radiation around the container, and this is considered safe, and this is considered safe for the workers, and you can work with such a container. You can sell it, and it's you know you have a license, right? You got a license if it's safe enough, right? So this document that is in my book shows that at a distance of 50 millimeters, right, so very close to the container, uh, they measured that the norm, right, the legal, you know, norm was exceeded 500 times. So it was oh, 500 okay. times more than what the law accepted for people working with radiation, right? At you know, at a power plant or whatever, right? So mm-hmm. you can imagine how drastically dangerous this was. And yeah, experts probably think, Jesus Christ, that's just, you know, crazy because it is extremely dangerous. So with time, the officers did everything they could to improve the conditions. And also they had to tackle some, you know, Obstacles that arise along the way. One of them was the wheels that I mentioned, the plastic wheels. You couldn't use this method that I described with plastic wheels because you just wouldn't see anything. You could radiate that, you know, that door for hours and hours and hours, and, and at the end of the day, you just have blank space where the lock is, right? Because the, the, the wheels are plastic. You could see maybe some other elements of the of the lock, but definitely not what you were most interested in. So mm-hmm. what they did was they used it's called a scintillation probe. This is a device that's it's a very, you know, sophisticated device used for measuring radiation levels. So it's a tube usually uh, and, you know, the radiation goes inside and there's, you know, like a computer usually connected to that that shows, you know, or some kind of meter, right, that shows dials and things like that shows how much radiation there is. So what they did was because yeah the, the wheels were plastic, they they would come to a safe or a vault that had these plastic wheels. One of these places was the consulate in in Krakow and but there were other 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 embassies that bought such locks in the 80s. So, you know, it was a method that they had to use very often. So, they would check what lock it is. They would check where because okay, let's come back for a second to the wheels that I described, right? They have to for the lock to open, they have to be in a certain position. So, the wheel is not you know, anybody can Google now combination lock wheels and probably they'll see a picture. So this wheel is not 360 degrees, you know, full metal. There's a notch in one of the places in the wheel. So for the lock to open, all of these notches had to align. And then in this space that was created, right, with the three or four wheels, right, the notches were in one position, there was an element that jumped in and then you would open the lock, right? So Basically, the officers would check the particular model of a lock. They could park, potentially even buy one in West Germany, for example, the same one. They would look at it. They would unscrew everything, look at, you know, measure everything. And they would check where on the lock the notch, notch appears when you insert the right combination. So they would come to, come back to the embassy and they would take collimator. So collimator is a that's an easy... You could say device, not even device, it's a tool, I guess, right? So it's a piece of metal. Of course, okay, maybe it sounds easier than it actually is when I say it. But yeah, it's basically a piece of metal, special metal, right? That is a long tube you know, with a hole inside. So you shoot, let's say, the beam, the rays, the gamma rays through it. And then you have a collimated beam, right? So a thin beam of radiation, right? That, of course, over time becomes wider and wider as it is with many objects in physics, right? But at the very beginning, it's collimated, so it's a thin beam, right? So they would shoot the radiation through this collimator exactly in the place where they were hoping for the notches right, in the wheels to appear, where they should appear, right? And then some meters away, the funny story is with the Swedish embassy because they actually Every time they did that, they had to wait for the Swedish ambassador who lived inside the embassy. They would have to uh, wait for him to go on holidays, and then they would shoot the beam through the vault door, through the lock, and they would have these, before mentioned, scintillation probes, these devices to measure radiation, set up in the ambassador's kitchen. So they would be sitting in the kitchen because the kitchen was behind, I'm not sure if it was, you know, how many feet, 50 feet or something, behind the vault, Right. So, they would set up all of these devices in his kitchen, and the beam coming from the vault would end up in this very sensitive scintillation probe, which detected radiation. And then, hmm. this is also a tragic story, but in many cases, the officers would basically stand right next to the isotope, right next to the collimator, and they would be manually with their hand turning the dial on the combination lock by a notch, by half a notch, a little bit. So they would move the notch from, let's say, one to two, right? You know, you have the combination lock and the numbers. So they would move it a little bit. And then the other guys in in the ambassador's kitchen would see if anything changed in the results and, and the radiation, how strong it is. And then if on one of the notches, they saw a small change, right? So they saw that the radiation was a little bit more strong. This would indicate that possibly the notch on one of the wheels, right? Is in the way, or actually there's nothing in the way because there's a notch, you understand, right? So they would start off with four wheels covering, right? There were no notches. And then as they were turning, a notch would appear on one of the wheels, which allowed for more radiation to go through. So they would write it down and they would turn that, you know, for a long time, check, write down, check, write down. And at the end of the day, they would have a list of possible combinations, right? Because they would see in what positions there was a visible result, right, on the meter, right? So, yeah, they would this way find out what the combination is. But you have to understand that they were turning manual. Not only were they were in the room where there was radiation, even if you have a collimator, there's still radiation around it, obviously. Mm -hmm. But also, they were actually turning the dial with their hands. So there are documents in these files saying, for example, that this and this officer got this and this much radiation on his right hand. What does that mean? He was operating something, right, next to the beam with his hand. For example, the dial on the lock. So, Mm -hmm. you know, these numbers are crazy, and they're really high. And like I said, many of these
0: men, unfortunately, died. So, Tom, were they fully aware of the danger that they were in at the time? I mean, was any of this kept from them? No, not at all. First of
1: all, they they nobody would keep it from them because you need to be fair. And second of all, we're not talking about, you know, some kind of guy that was pulled out of some workshop fixing cars, you know, fixing, of course, people who fix cars are also experts, but obviously they don't know about radiation, right? So these were not men that were that were, you know, taken from somewhere without any knowledge of anything. These were people who sometimes had PhDs. So these would be sometimes scientists or engineers, uh, and even if not engineers, then just, you know, great experts at what they were doing. And they not only knew, some of them had, you know, licenses for working with radiation obtained at different institutions, right? So like I said, they would have PhDs. So not only they were aware, they actually calculated all of this. It's not like somebody gave them a method and said, you know, do it whatever, you just dial this thing, you know, move it and uh, not dial, sorry, but move the dial and, and you know, see what happens. They actually mm-hmm. were the men who calculated and designed all of these, all of this equipment. So for example, they would have an idea for equipment. Sometimes it wouldn't be made by them simply because, you know, they were not a factory where you could produce a device, but they would actually design stuff and then go to different factories, institutions around Poland, present themselves to the military, which they were not because it was the Ministry of Internal Affairs. And they would say, oh, will the military... We would like to do some research on metal objects where you have air inside, but there are some metal elements and we would like to see. So why don't you design this for us? And they would give them a design, you know, an idea for a, for a device. The company would say, okay, we can do that. Why not? You know, we'll help the military. And they did. And they would have, you know, devices that were basically designed partially by them.
0: Oh, my gosh. That, that is amazing to me. I mean, these are tremendously capable guys, but so they were knowingly trading their futures to accomplish these missions and like they knew what it was doing to their lifespans then overall. Right.
1: Yes, and this is why they, uh, uh, like I said, tried to develop these methods as much as possible. First, because they, they there were some ab- obstacles like the you know plastic wheels, but also because they were trying to be safer and safer. And there are you know different devices that appear within this section nine in the 80s. So, for example, I mentioned that they had to move the dial manually. So this, for example, was the case at the Swedish embassy because the Swedish embassy had a sophisticated lock on the vault door where you wouldn't just turn the dial, but you also had to press it. So, you know, it was very difficult to create a device that would be able to press it and move it by... Exactly by a half a notch. You could do it, but you know it was uh, also it would also be standing in the way of radiation. So you know just different. There's different circumstances. Didn't allow for them to use any device to to rotate the, the the dial. But at different embassies, where for example you had a normal combination lock where you just turn you know left and right, they were able, for example, to design a device that would remotely you know with them standing at a distance turn the dial by half a notch. Right? Exactly by half a notch. So, you know, such things started appearing, right? They they did okay. what they could do to stay as far away from the, you know, vault and the safe that we're, they were working on. But, you know, it could never be 100% safe because they had to carry that thing inside. And for them to, to have a container, I mean, a container that would block all the radiation, you can imagine how much it would weigh. So you would not be able to, to carry that with the residents of the embassy sleeping just, you know, 10 inches away from you you wouldn't be able to mm-hmm. carry a, you know, like a 2000 pound container, right? Hmm. Uh, so it had to be mobile enough, right? So they did what they could to have light containers that protected them as much as possible, but they never con- uh, protected them hundred percent because it's physically impossible today. Even I suppose, right. There are no materials that would weigh a container that would weigh 40 pounds and protect you totally from radiation. It's probably yeah. impossible. I don't know, but I'm guessing it's impossible.
0: Yeah, I would imagine. So that's incredible. So wh- what do you think Tom was there? motivation to do this incredibly dangerous work? Like, were they well compensated? Or were they very, you know, patriotic, you know, service first kind of guys or something else? It's
1: very interesting. I mean, very good that you asked that, because there is a certain paradox in section nine, because you asked if they were paid well. The These operations were so secret until just recently, you know, my, my book appeared and, and people now know about it. But before that, you know, I was the first one to open these documents too, right? There, there's, you know, when you open files in such institutions, like our archives, there is a list of people that opened it. I was the first one, right? So oh it's only, it only the surface now. So this thing was so secret, even within the intelligence, the counterintelligence that people didn't talk about it. even the bosses of, you know, like, like, the person that was always present, actually, during these operations, not exactly at the embassy, but in an, usually in an apartment or a car close by, was actually the deputy chief of counterintelligence. That's a very high position. And he would always, it was the same person for this, in the 70s and 80s, all throughout these years, it was the same guy that every time, 100 and something times a year sometimes, he would be present at night. It's actually, you know, he was actually like 60 years old or something in the 80s and he still had to do that. So that's that's a lot for a 60-year-old guy. Mm-hmm. But he would go, you know, every other night or, you know, every three days he would go uh, and spend the night with these the Section 9 sitting in a car in an apartment close by. Uh, and he was kind of like the guy in charge, right? You know, if something, you know, there was a very important decision had to be made, he would, he would make it, right? Of course, the, his decisions didn't concern, you know, technical aspects because he had no idea about them. It was just, you know, a high-ranking officer. If, let's say, the there was a screw-up and our guys were caught, right, which never happened. But if they were, you know, he would be the guy to react and make a decision. And we're running, we're doing this, we're calling the militia, which is the police then. But the motivation, oh yeah, I know what we were talking about. we were talking about the money, if they were paid. So this guy, the deputy chief of counterintelligence knew. The chief of counterintelligence obviously knew. But for example, oh, that's, that's, I have a great example. I talked to the chief of our intelligence from the 1970s, just a few months ago, he told me, He actually, he read my book. I gave it to him, he read it. And he said, well, sir, can you imagine that me being the head of intelligence, right? I had no idea about this until I read your book. I had no idea. I I, I had no clue. Nobody ever told me. I was not informed. And uh, yeah, so you can imagine how big of a secret that was. And Hmm. there is a paradox that this secrecy caused so the irony is that because nobody knew what they were doing and what they were accomplishing it was very hard to to go through the bureaucracy of the ministry of internal affairs and actually get for example the director responsible for for money yeah inside the ministry of internal affairs to say okay we're going to give them twice more money there was an idea i believe it was in the 80s or in the 70s there's a there are actually a lot of documents concerning that and the officers told me about it that they there was hope that the head of the counterintelligence, who who he knew very well, right, what they were doing, he presented a document, I believe, to the Minister of Internal Affairs saying that the, Section 9 deals with very stressful and very unhealthy work. The officers are exposed to a lot of stress and a lot of health issues, right? And therefore, we would like to for them to retire faster, right? Yeah. So, so they would get their retirement much faster than the office, other, let's say, normal officers do. And in, this idea didn't even go through because the minister read it. He probably gave it to I don't know his deputy. The deputy said, "What the hell are they doing?" He probably called the head of counterintelligence and said, "Okay, well, possibly we could do that, but you know, tell me what they do." And what did the head of counterintelligence say? Nothing. He, he was, you know, he was he, he he would say, "Oh well, yeah, well, they do this stuff that is stressful, but what is it?" Well, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't oh, tell gosh. him. So they never got more money. They got bonuses, uh, sometimes if something you know very important was used, found in the safes or, and so on. But these were bonuses just like the, the bonuses that other officers got, you know, just like in any other institution or company. So no, they did not earn more money, and their motivation was very simple. What is the motivation of you know FBI officers? What is the motivation of MI6, MI5 officers? Whatever? It's just you know working for the country. They were discovering things. That mattered. They were catching spies. They were detecting different threats, right? So they were just working for the country, and they continued to work later on in the 90s and 2000s, right, together with the Americans too, right? I don't know what they did because what's post-1990 is secret, but, they, yeah, they did work. Just like they worked for Poland before 1990, they worked for Poland
0: post-1990. Hmm. Amazing. These guys were incredible rare finds then in that case to do that kind of work with no recognition, no kind of material reward, and knowing explicitly what it was doing to their own health and longevity, and they still went ahead and did the job. That's incredible. Right. So, Tom, are you aware of any specific intelligence that they were able to gather, uh, like any of the actual successes that all of this hard work brought them?
1: You know, you have kind of two types of information, right? One was the information that was strictly interesting to the case officers and counterintelligence, right? So so things that related to espionage. So the basic thing that would be found at a major embassy or consulate would for sure be letters or other evidence of walk-ins. And um, I'm sure some of the listeners know, but let's just say quickly what walk, who walk-ins are. And the walk-ins are, of course, the people who voluntarily offer their services you know, so they, they want to be a spy for a certain country. So you for example, you at that time you had a poll that would come to the British Embassy, for example, and you know, and either yeah, come physically come and say, Oh, you know, quietly say to the guard, well, can I meet with the guy from the intelligence or something? And then the guard would, you know, call the guy from the intelligence. The intelligence guy would come and possibly either, you know, take him to a room and and discuss, you know, matters with him. Or maybe he would tell him, you know, leave right away and I'll meet you on this, this day or call this number, whatever, right? So that's a walk-in, right? Somebody that offers voluntarily, he's not forced by anybody, it's just his idea. So at all major embassies and councillors, they found evidence of the presence of walk So either, you know, documents saying on this and this day, you know, a guy, whatever, and his name and last name came and, you know, we discussed this and he offered that. So even if an embassy, and it happened, right, didn't have a huge intelligence station, right? There was only one officer or there was no officer at the time or something, right? Which happened rarely, they usually had somebody. But even if they didn't, there still would be that first document, that you know, indicated that somebody came and that would be given to the intelligence either in the country itself, right? I mean, it would be sent somewhere to Great Britain or whatever, Germany or something. Uh, or it would be later given to the, to the, you know, the mm, chief of station or whatever, but there was something on paper that very often was even in one of the, you know, first safe somewhere because, you know, yesterday there was a walk-in and they put in the first safe and they waited for the next day to give it to the chief of station. Right. So, you know, they put in the safe, they thought it was safe because, you know, it's a big ass <laughs> safe and a nice vault. Mm-hmm. So, so they didn't think that anybody would see it. And also, like I said, there were letters too. So, so walk-ins very often, back in the day, and who knows, maybe even today as well, they, they would just send letters, right, uh, to, to a particular embassy saying, I can meet you here and there. I'm an officer in the Polish army. You know, why don't we meet, right, and discuss business? So the officers would find that, for example, and, you know, the case officers dealing with a particular country would, you know, work on that case. And of course, there are many solutions. You could, for example, you could meet with the guy, pretending to be an officer a british officer for example so a polish officer sp- who speaks english very well would meet with the with the walk-in and say oh, yeah, well, i'm from mi6 or whatever and i'll work with you and of course the 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 pole would say yeah sure i want money blah, blah blah and that evidence would be gathered and the guy would be arrested for example right you could also have other solutions right so they would for example surveil that guy and watch him meet with the mi6 officer that's broad counterintelligence and probably a topic for for a different discussion right but they could you know observe them and see how mi6 operates see what kind of i don't know communications plans he gets right what kind of devices one-time pads whatever so there are a lot of things you can do knowing that somebody is a spy right Mm -hmm. so this is one thing then also of course there were uh, situations where our counterintelligence was able to particularly get into the safes of the station of an intelligence service, right? within the embassy. So, you know, what was inside that kind of stuff? I mean, just everything, right? So you had everything that had to do with recruited agents. Sometimes, you know, it was literally said, sometimes you'd have code names, but you'd have a lot of information, right? About, you know, the operations of a particular service. So there were situations like, for example, a big case in the 80s where my interviewees entered the Spanish embassy, and they opened an unbelievably advanced safe, which actually had a timer inside. A timer is something that you, well, now there there there's not a lot of cash at banks, but back in the day, even 10 years ago, right, you'd have, in Poland, there were such safes, so I'm sure around the world too, you'd have the bank teller, and behind him there would be a safe with cash, but the safe would say, it was visible to all the people visiting the bank, the safe would say, we're sorry, but our workers cannot open the safe between the I don't know, seven o'clock in the morning and nine o'clock mm-hmm. in the evening. So don't even bother trying to rob them because there's a timer inside. So the timer is a device back in the day and maybe even today is, you know, a mechanical device. It's just a clock, right, that you set and you cannot open the safe, for example, at night or during the day, whatever you set it to. Right. So this safe had a timer, a sophisticated timer inside with three clocks there are pictures of it actually in the book so the spanish people when they were leaving the embassy they would you know set the clock to i don't know 12 hours or whatever whenever they came back to the embassy right so it was impossible even for them to open the safe their own safe at night right because it was just blocked but our officers worked on it and and it's one of the most fascinating stories actually that yeah, we discussed and they said well even though it's not a secret anymore because maybe somewhere, I didn't find it in the documents, but there are a lot, so maybe it is somewhere there. I haven't found it yet, but we discussed and they said, yeah, even though it's declassified, let's just not tell people how we did it, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Keep it a secret. But it's an amazing story how they beat that clock and there are pictures of it in, in the book. So they opened the safe and inside the safe, they found an entire archive of the Spanish intelligence service. So these were floppy disks that were actually encrypted But they copied the floppy disks. They encrypted it. Our counterintelligence computer experts, because, you know, we're talking about the 80s. This is not middle ages. We're talking about computers and floppy disks as well. So they decrypted it. And we were able to, yeah, this way we obtained the entire list, the entire archive of agents ran by the Spanish intelligence in Poland. So this is just one of the examples. The Americans kept their intelligence documents, some of them, not all of them, because obviously the station, the... Polish CIA station was in Warsaw at the embassy, rightly so because you know it was very well protected. But there were CIA documents in Poznan and in Krakow as well, right? So there is a list, for example, in the book which mentions secret CIA documents that were obtained. I can't remember if it was Poznan or Krakow. So there is a list saying, you know, secret document of the CIA, for example, concerning the plans for intelligence gathering for the next month. So Hmm. you know, if you have a document saying okay, the director or deputy or whatever of the CA would like to find out more about the factory of tanks in the southern part of Poland, right? And it's exactly mentioned. You know, you can do things to either catch whoever will be spying there, you know, within a month, two, three, four, whatever. Or you can, you know, set up, you know, different counterintelligence, double agent operations, you know, you can do a lot of things. This is very valuable knowledge. Sure. And then the second part which I think doesn't uh, require such a long explanation is all of the documents dealing with true embassy work so we would know exactly what the plans of a particular country were for us we knew exactly what for example oh yeah that's another good example you we would have copies of discussions that for example the representatives of different nato countries had about a certain event that would take place in Poland, right? I don't know, the elections. So we knew exactly what they were thinking. We knew what their plans were. We, 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 we would be able to anticipate stuff. And yeah, this extremely valuable stuff.
0: My gosh, yeah, that's absolute treasure trove every time. I'm imagining these guys, since you were talking about the walk-ins right at the beginning, thinking about these people that are taking what they know is the biggest risk of their life, by walking into this foreign embassy and offering their services. And, you know, whether it's because they want to get out or whether ideological reasons or just for a big payout. And, you know, they're being assured that their information will never be revealed to anyone, their personal information. And neither of the people having that conversation know that that safe is going to be open (laughs) that night by somebody who's been in there 20 times before and is going to keep doing it every week. So
1: that's a pretty horrifying
0: thing to consider, even though they, of course, they know that there always is some risk to walking in.
1: Yeah, and especially sending a letter. I mean, I, you know, of course, now we can pretend to be smart because we have all this knowledge. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) even back in the day, it seems so. Risky to me to send a letter. I mean, even an amateur should figure out that all of the mail, not just in Poland, but just anywhere around the world, and letters sent to the Russian embassy in Washington could be surveilled. I mean, could be open, right, by somebody. It's, it's not difficult to intercept at the post office where you'd have a source and he would just put aside every letter that said, you know, Russian embassy, Soviet embassy actually at the time, Mm -hmm. right? It's really risky. And I think it's a bad, it was a bad decision on their part to actually send
0: letters. But yeah, that's what happened. And 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 we were able to find evidence of that. Yeah, amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. So uh, you've mentioned 1990 several times as a, a vast change. And of course, it was for so many reasons. But what happened exactly to Section 9 once the, the government completely transitioned. I believe I mentioned
1: earlier that I just can't ask because everything <laughs> that's post nineteen
0: ninety. you know, I would like to know.
1: It would be cool, but at the same time, I will never ask because you know you have to re- respect the fact that you know it's it's secret. It's it's even illegal for for me to know. So I don't know what happened post nineteen ninety. I can. Say what generally happened to 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 the intelligence counterintelligence service. So once 1990 kicks in, right, the the former it's called SB, the security service, yeah, of Poland is shut down, right. It closes its doors and it's transformed into something called UOP, Urząd Ochrony Państwa, which is Office of State Protection. This institution inside it it has intelligence counterintelligence. Years later, now today we have counterintelligence intelligence separately, but then it was one institution, right, that's the former security service turned into. Yeah. So now we have this new institution and practically all of the officers from the counterintelligence, for sure from, from section nine, just go on to work in the new structure. And so is the case for most of the other counterintelligence officers, case officers, intelligence officers, right? They just start working in the new reality alongside some new people, right? Uh, that were, you know, hired. So yeah, they, they keep on working. And so uh, yeah, and they they have new targets, obviously, right? So <laughs> so Russia becomes a target overnight, you could say, right? You know what happened in, in, in Europe, right? Yeah. So it's the yeah. fall of communism and, and you have new targets when the main one is basically Russia. So I don't know what they did, but it's... Obvious that they didn't suddenly in 1990s start sitting behind a desk, you know, playing a computer game, right? Right. Uh, right. They had to do something technical. I think it would be important and, and nice to mention what the head actually, the former head of our Office of State Protection, so the new institution that I mentioned from the 1990s, he was not the people, one of the people that I interviewed because he was one of the people that he was a case officer that took part in these clandestine searches with Section Nine, right? So so he knew them very well. He was friends with them. And he was, like I said, after 1990, he was the head of the entire intelligence counterintelligence combined. And his a part of my interview with him is the the very end of my book, and it won't be too big of a spoiler if I tell if I say what he said. And you know, he said, "Well, you know, I can't say what these men did after 1990 because now, for now, it's still taboo. But I can say one thing that they uh, were one of the mm, most important." people that we show that we showed the Americans, you know, to present ourselves and to show what we can do and that we are worth of American or worth of being allies with the Americans that, you know, Mm. we're worth something. So these are one of the most important men that we showed the Americans after 1990. And he also said, yeah, it's taboo. He can't say what they did, but he assured me, that's the very end of my book, that once the, these documents are declassified, God knows when, in 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, God knows if I'll be alive. He <laughs> said that I will for sure have a nice book <laughs> out of that. Oh, man. That oh man! He can you can tell me what they too. did. They went on to work for the new new counterintelligence. They went on to work with our new allies, such as the Americans. What they did, I don't know. But let me just say one thing. That what we describe today is not something that is that was only done by the Poles. It seems that the radiation method was only used by us and the Soviets. It doesn't look like even the other Warsaw Pact counterintelligence services knew about it. So there is some evidence that proves that. We don't know for sure, but it seems that the the Russians only shared that method in the early 70s, probably, and maybe late 60s with us. But it doesn't seem like the Hungarians, for example, knew it because the Hungarians, our uh, Section 9 officers met the Hungarians. The Different intelligence services and counterintelligence services, I'm sorry, they cooperated just like they do within NATO today. So they had a chance to meet the technical counterintelligence people, Hungary, and there was no mention of radiation. They had no idea, so they didn't look like they they knew anything about that unless they were just not talking about it, but they could, you know, we were allies and these were men that did the same thing. So they could talk about it. So they knew they would probably mention it. So it seems that we could have been the only ones together with the Soviets. So, but at the same time, you know, we were, all of the things we discussed today, I mean, the clandestine searches themselves, these are not things that were only done by us. This is something that was done by most respected counterintelligence services around the world. There's been mention and you you know, you can find it online, probably, you know, old news reports or even in new books, you can find some information about, you know, some NATO country, right, conducting a a clandestine search. I remember one time I read it didn't concern the FBI, so it didn't concern American territory, but I read uh, something about CIA teams doing that in embassies around the world, right? So this is something that is done was done and most probably is done today as well. So what I'm getting at is that I don't know what they did post-1990, but why wouldn't they keep on doing what they did against new targets? I mean, I don't see any reason why they would not do it. Maybe the new government would be A little bit concerned with the radiation thing right so they would say well (laughs) maybe there's something else you can do but then on the other hand the new government would never even know about the radiation because they were never told this was a secret of these men and the boss of counterintelligence you know some of his deputies maybe and the polish president didn't know about the radiation he Possibly, maybe not, didn't even know exactly that the votes were entered, right? They would, He would know that there was some information obtained by the counterintelligence. I'm sure a lot of our listeners read somewhere what such reports made by, by intelligence, counterintelligence look like. So, you know, such a document usually says that the intelligence service has obtained information pointing to blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So the president doesn't, if he's professional, he doesn't even ask. You know, he doesn't say, "Oh, tell me the name of the agent or whatever source you have that gave you this information." He does not ask if he's professional, right? So, so I don't see a reason why post 1990 they wouldn't continue to do these clandestine searches. I don't know what about the radiation, but also, who knows? They they might have continued to to do
0: the exactly same thing alongside mm-hmm. their new allies including the Americans. Who
1: knows? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I look forward to that story one day, although I think we'll be waiting a very long time. I would yeah, imagine.
1: I think so. This time, I hope, I would like to know what they did. But at the same time, I <laughs> hope they will not declassify documents in the near future because, yeah, that's not just not the way it should be done. Counterintelligence is an important intelligence. Counterintelligence is an important thing, and these documents should be kept
0: secret for many, many years. Yeah, of course. Of course, there needs to be a, a sound judgment utilized when you release documents, certainly because of the people that might endanger. I have to say, Tom, it's amazing to me that. Not only would they go, would they transition during that period of around 1992 from targeting NATO to working closely with NATO, who is now their allies, but the new number one target, Russia, already knows all their tricks because they introduced so many of those tricks yeah, in yeah, years past. So what a challenging not, target that is. Mm-hmm.
1: It is. It is. Speaking of the times after 1990, there's one more thing I would like to mention, and I, I think it's an important part of the story. Is that I think it will be even hard to understand for some of our listeners because I, yeah, you know, it's just a crazy story and and people will probably scratch their heads and say, "Well, how is that even possible?" Well, years, some years ago, not so long actually, a few years ago, well, no, a little bit more, sorry, but but you know, in, in present times, the Polish government, pressured by you know different politicians, pressured sometimes by people outside the government, they decided to take away the pensions. Of all the officers of our intelligence counterintelligence, even if—and this is amazing—even if they worked one day, as little as one day in Polish People's Republic, so before the fall hmm. of communism. So, if somebody—and that's not a joke—there were such cases. They're described in the media and so on. If somebody was a secretary, I'm not kidding. He was, she was a, somebody was a secretary, somebody that dealt with the library, you know, just like a li- librarian at the Ministry of Internal Affairs. And started working a day, two days, three days before the fall of communism. And then went on to work 30 years in the counterintelligence. She would have her pension cut by... She would have like five times less, four times less. Only the minimum to survive. Like the Actually, even less than minimum with the inflation and everything. It's just ridiculous amounts of money. It's very little. So they would have all their pensions taken away if they even worked one day. So this is one of the most ridiculous things that I've ever heard of that these people in 1990, when they were hired by the new intelligence counterintelligence service, they were given a job and they were shown that, you know, that the new government had trust. They went on to work and create great relationships with, well, mainly mainly Americans. Again, we come back to the same thing, you know, you were, and you are our main ally Mm -hmm. and we work very closely. And so they, These officers that worked before the fall of communism were the ones responsible for creating great relationships that last until this day. These people, these men became privately, outside of counterintelligence, they became friends with CA officers, FBI officers, just friends, privately friends. And then suddenly, many years later, the government decided to take their pensions away because they worked for, for a day, for 10 years, for 15 years, for two months. You know before nineteen ninety for years and years, and this story is fortunately coming to a good end now because more and more officers are winning their money back in the courts, so they're getting their money back, but for many years, there were situations where they seriously didn't have enough money to survive they mm. most of them most of them had kids like most people do around the world, right and it was the kids that had to basically pay for everything because these people didn't have any pension only very minimum, minimum amounts of money. Yeah. So, so I've heard many comments from, you know, CA officers who also were shocked. They were saying like, why the hell are you doing this? You know, we worked with these men they got medals from us. I mean, come on, our intelligence, counterintelligence officers got medals from your presidents post 1990. And then suddenly they're, you know, punished for working before 1990 even though, you know, in 1990 they were told that, you know, the new government trusted them, they deserved the trust, like I said, accomplished a lot for our secret services. So, uh luckily this story is coming to a positive end now, slowly, but there are officers who died of heart attacks within the process, I mean during the process of trying to get the money back. So they would get oh, for wow. example 1 2 Negative decision from the court, and I'm not joking. There's a list of such people actually created. They would die the same day, the next day, because imagine working all your life, sometimes forty years plus, forty plus years, in the counterintelligence, and then you retire. You deserve to retire, right? And you deserve to, you know, live out your years, your summer house or whatever, and suddenly you're left with nothing. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's unthinkable for so many people. My gosh. Right. Well, wow. Okay. Well, yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to look into that a little bit. I hadn't heard that story before, but that is really unfortunate that you do exactly what's expected of you for so long, and then 30 years later, you get the rug pulled out from under you, like you said. Exactly. Amazing. Yeah. So, Tom, this has been incredible. I am very, very happy that you were able to research this story and share it with all of us. What are you working on now that your book has been published?
1: Basically, my goal is to raise counterintelligence awareness. Uh, And we live in times when, you know, we're talking about the Cold War, and we think of spies, we think of the Cold War. But we have just as many and some people say more spies right now. And I think counterintelligence awareness is something that mm, makes a big difference.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think you're certainly doing that now because so many people are going to hear this story and be as amazed by it as I have been. And do you have any like public facing website or social media or anything like that if people want to connect with you after this?
1: Well, if somebody wants to connect with me, I have my email address is appropriate for somebody who wants to raise counterintelligence awareness. So You can email me at, uh, at oh, so wow. okay. that's how to catch a spy at protonmail dot how to catch a spy no dots and then at protonmail.com.
0: Okay, fantastic. yeah, we'll share that in the sh- in the uh, show notes if you don't mind. Great. yeah, sure. fantastic. All right. well, thank you, Tom. This has been incredibly enlightening, honestly, and I really appreciate you sharing this story with us. Thanks for having me. That was great. Absolutely. Take care. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.